This episode of Continuing Mission is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome everyone to another episode of Continuing Mission, our look at the ways in which fans are keeping Star Trek alive. I'm your host, Christopher Jones, and the primary focus of this show is on the fan series, or as I prefer to call them, independent productions, that tell new stories set in the Star Trek universe. As Star Trek fans in 2014, you know, we have many wonderful independent series to enjoy. But it wasn't always that way. Back in April 2003, Jack Marshall and James Cawley created Star Trek New Voyages, and were the first to bring Kirk, Spock, and the missions of the Enterprise 1701 back to the screen. In February 2008, they redubbed the series Star Trek Phase Two, the title of the planned but never produced television series from the late 1970s. Since its inception as New Voyages in 2003, Phase Two has produced nine episodes, Come What May, In Harm's Way, To Serve All My Days, World Enough in Time, Blood and Fire, which was a two-parter, Enemy Starfleet, The Child, and Katumba, along with three vignettes, Center Seat, No Win Scenario, and Going Boldly. Phase 2 has also had some familiar faces and guest roles in these episodes, including Walter Koenig, George Takei, Barbara Luna, and David Gerald. But the best is yet to come. To find out just what that means, I'm joined today by a full bridge from Phase 2. Brian Gross, who plays Kirk, Brandon Stacy, who plays Spock, writer Rick Chambers, first AD Dennis Hudson, gaffer and line producer Robert Morrow, and production assistant and resident Trexpert Jamie Sanchez. We'll learn about cast and crew changes at Phase 2, the new 13,000 square foot facility and new sets, the next three episodes, and more. Before we jump into the discussion, please note that my six guests today joined from six different locations using a combination of computers and phones, so you'll hear varying sound quality. Let's just chalk it up to Klingon interference and sit back and enjoy this in-depth look into Star Trek Phase 2. Hello guys, welcome to Continuing Mission. It's great to have you with me today, and there are so many of you guys with me here on the bridge today. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and introduce yourselves first before we jump into talking about Phase 2, and tell everyone your name, of course, and what you do on the series. Hi, my name is Brian Gross, and they brought me in to play Captain Kirk on the series Star Trek Phase 2, and it has been an absolute blast. I'm talking to you from um, Southern California. I live out here in L.A. with my wife and two kids, and and now we're all becoming Trekkies. It's fantastic. Hi, I'm Jamie Sanchez, also known as Fez from Star Trek Phase 2. I'm an assistant to the producers and general Trekspert. I'm Rick Chambers. I'm a writer for Star Trek Phase 2. I've been involved in for uh, about three years and uh, having a blast. I'm Rob. I'm one of the line producers and the gaffer for Star Trek Phase 2. And I joined the crew in 2006. Hi, I'm Dennis Huston. I've been with Star Trek Phase 2 since uh, 2012 when Brian came aboard. And I'm the first assistant director. And And like everyone else, we're just having a blast. Hi, my name is Brandon Stacey. I play Spock on Star Trek Days 2. Excellent. All right. So, well, I think I've only had this many people on a show once in the past. So it will be fun to have such a large discussion. And the first thing I wanted to ask you guys about is recreating a classic because Phase 2 is 
Can I use the term granddaddy? I hope that doesn't offend anyone, <laughs> the term granddaddy. But, you know, you guys were the first show to bring Kirk and Spock back to screen. And you've been doing it for a decade now. And you really paved the way. There are so many series out there now. And a lot of people, and I see this sometimes with media where they don't realize that this is something that fans do and that professionals do who are fans. You guys really paved the way for the series that have come after you. Rob, I know you've been around since 2006. I think amongst the group here, you are the veteran of Phase 2. What was it like over the course of this decade bringing Kirk and Spock back and facing the challenges of building the sets and the visual effects that would meet fan expectations on such a very small budget? I think one of the biggest problems that we have is realizing that we can't please every fan. And in retrospect, as we started looking back, we realized that that was the same case with TOS when it was, you know, when it was being aired in syndication even. Um, so, I mean, one of the good things that we had uh, was access to the original Desilu blueprints as well as the uh, patterns for the costumes. So there's a lot of authenticity that goes into our production. But even so, we'd get taken to task for even simple things. If there was a, a C-stand that was just slightly in a frame, uh, it was funny because um, when we shot Blood and Fire, David Gerald played the uh, the dead captain on the Copernicus, and of course, he breathed because he's you know alive. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, we took we took so much flack for that that um, it, it it annoyed um, because at this time, I mean, we were, we were still taking a lot of things personally. It, it really annoyed the the VFX and the post production team so much that they went in and rotoscoped him to death. Um, quite literally and and <laughs> until finally the fans stopped complaining so it, it's been an, it's been an interesting ride we have a blast in making these and i think that's that's a lot of it and, and what keeps us going is, is we really enjoy working with each other which you kind of have to when you're working 12 to 18 hour days you either leave hating each other or you leave loving each other right so we're really lucky in that respect and from there you know we've gotten to the point where we want to make this for for the true fans and we want to make this because we really enjoy making it um and we keep trying to improve which is the other thing i like there isn't anyone on the team who doesn't go out there and see how they can do it better each and every time it's interesting you said that early on you were still taking things personally how has that changed as you've made more and more episodes well we we've, we've realized that as time went on that you were always going to have people who were, who were either trolling or who were going to attack anything that you do and I, I think we started realizing that those aren't the people that you can make happy ever and that you're always going to run into that it's like with anything there's there's no show on tv that everyone watches or that everyone likes and i think you know we all started coming to that realization and and i think that that helps over over the years because you can start making it for the fans who really appreciate it and so I think that's the point that we're all getting to. Brian, I believe you are the newest cast member of the regular cast, correct? Playing Captain Kirk? Yes. What was it like for you walking on to the set that they have established for the past 10 years? And, and then you walk in and you're in Star Trek. When I first came on, James Cowley, who uh, who heads the whole thing, he, he gave me... Uh, a heads up about what a big deal it is for everybody and what it would mean for everyone. And so I was a little nervous when I first came in. He announced to everybody that I was coming in and I walked into a big room full of people and everyone was just staring at me. And um, I was kind of ready for it, but not completely because I knew that I was playing a character that meant a lot to a lot of people. But then after they looked at me for a couple seconds, they just started cheering. It was just the whole room was filled with cheering. And I knew immediately that I had a lot of people that, are, that were going to watch my back and make sure I did this role correctly. Jamie is uh, actually, he's been by my side and he is a Captain Kirk expert. <laughs> and uh, he watches everything I do and I, I read my sides with him and he goes over things with me. And this kind of goes back to what Rob was talking about. There's a lot of critics out there that will be unhappy with certain things with the show. And, and uh, for example, early on, they were upset with which side my hair was parted on because it was incorrect. Right. But ultimately, I think those, those critics, it, it, it helps us because we fixed it. 
And so I actually wrote back to the person that, that uh, gave that critique and I said, you know, thank you for letting us know. So all of those critics can also help us make the show better. And I think that's what, what has helped keep us evolving is that so many people, it means so much to them that they're watching every detail. So I think we're, we're getting a lot of it right because if we don't, someone's going to notice. Absolutely. Jamie, you're a Captain Kirk expert. So as we're talking about recreating the, and I'm careful to use the word recreating here because I don't mean making over. I mean, bringing back to life, making the set, making the costumes and all. But as you guys are recreating and continuing the original series, what's it been like for you in this process? And especially as a Captain Kirk expert, as Brian said, helping to, to continue the life of Captain Kirk on screen. Well, I, I got to go back to 2009 whenever I was starting out as a grip on Kitsamba on the G&E team. And through, you know, this loving sense of family, I got nurtured into this family where, you know, I, I could have my opinion heard. And it got to a point where, you know, James Colley, who's the executive producer of the show, um, when Brian was cast, right after he was introduced, he had me come into the makeup room. After he was made up as Kirk, he held up a, um, a photo of Shatner circa 1967 and goes, Fez, I need your opinion. And he swivels Brian around. And I was like taken aback. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, that's Captain Kirk. So even that right there, me tutoring Brian, as he's mentioned earlier, it's been a pleasure because not only does he look the part, he, he wants to learn. He wants to do this. He wants to do that. I have a story from The Holiest Thing where I had just sat down and Brian had not yet had any scenes on the bridge for a full episode because his previous episode, he was all on location. He's like, Fez, I need you to take me around the bridge. I, I need you to take me around the bridge. Show me what to do. I'm like, I just sat down. <laughs> Get up, Fez. <laughs> so, you know what? Meet me by the turbo lift. I'll, I'll come over there in a second. <laughs> so I go over to the turbo lift and I'm, he's like, so how do I walk onto the bridge? Well, first, you need to learn how to come off the turbo lift. And, and it went on from there. And, you know, I'm ecstatic that James and everybody else at the, at the studio has so much confidence in my, me and my abilities to get things right, whether it's Rob with a lighting pattern from an episode or Brian asking me, what would Kirk do? How would Kirk say this? How would Shatner say it? It, it's been an amazing ride. There is something that as a Trexpert, I hope that you taught Brian how to do. Going back to Charlie X, did you teach him how to change tunics while he's in the turbo lift? So he goes in the turbo lift wearing one, comes out on the bridge wearing a different one? I have not, <laughs> only because we haven't had the uh, the wraparound tunic made for him yet. Okay. Well, now it's made, but he hasn't worn it on screen yet. So and we wouldn't do such a continuity error like that either, Chris. So we've got a crack continuity team. That that wouldn't happen on our show. Yeah, we got to teach him the judo chop, though. <laughs> but now you did teach him how to, to use the communicator, though. I remember that, like how he flips open. I, I taught him how to do everything on the bridge, and then what was it? It was the art. It was one of the scenes with JC and Holiest Thing, and he he's like. I'm sitting in his dressing room with him, and JC had just come in. And he's like, Fez, how would Shatner do this? I mean, Shatner would go, you. And then went on from there. Well, to go back to what Fez said about the, or Jamie said about the bridge, there's, there's little details and stuff that Shatner did. Like, he would walk a certain way. To, like when, when he left the chair, he would go a certain direction or he would lean a certain way. Like the details that he can give me of how it's supposed to be done on the bridge, I think those little things are very important because it, it lets people 
relive the old the old Star Treks. And he makes sure I get all those details. So poor guy, he doesn't get a chance to sit down because I need to learn all that stuff to make it true and real. Because that's the fun of it is you just get to go back and be in that again. So um, I'm, I'm very grateful for having Jamie to help me on set. You're, uh, uh, Brian, so where's my check? Yeah, yeah. I, I pay you in <laughs> hugs, best. That's right. <laughs> Darn. <laughs> and Jamie's great for our morale. I mean, he's he's always entertaining us, and you know, on a long day, he's you know the first guy to come up and hey, you know, and hand out a hug. And when I had some long, challenging days, he was always there to shore me up. So he's he's a great member of our family. I don't want to make Star Trek without him. Yeah, there, there's also Fez TV, which is a great way of relaxing, where we relive uh, episodes of Star Trek through Fez. <laughs> or movies, awesome. or or movies. You want you want to do the great great grandfather one? Oh no, I don't want to do risk. <laughs> Come on. Okay, hey, you gotta, you gotta, we gotta have a fed TV for him. <laughs> you say a man can fly, he'd have wings, but he didn't fly. He discovered he had to. Do you wish that the first Apollo mission hadn't reached the moon, or that we haven't got onto Mars or the nearest star? That's like saying you wish you still operate with scalpels and soldier bases up with cat cut like a great 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 grandfather used to. I'm in command. I could order this. But I'm not. Because Dr. McCoy is right and pointing out the enormous danger potential in any contact with life and intelligence as fantastically as events as this. But I must point out that the possibility, the potential for knowledge and advancement is equally great. Risk. <laughs> Risk is our business. That's what the starship is all about. That's why we're aboard her. You may dissent without prejudice. Do I hear I'm going to vote. <laughs> and that's what we do on set when we get bored. We turn on Fez TV. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> it helps that there's no Wi-Fi. Or there wasn't. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> well, we, we aired the holiest thing. We did a, we did a premiere at, uh, at a convention in Boston mm -hmm. just this past February. And we were, you know, in Act One, and I overheard a gentleman in the front row referring to Brian as he's a better Captain Kirk than Captain Kirk is. Wow. Um, so, I mean, it, it was it was just, you know, a great thing uh, to hear. And, and I think, uh, Jamie, that you texted that to Brian right away, didn't you? When we when we heard that, I did. Made my day. It was fantastic. <laughs> so I think that's directly because of all of the support that that Brian got from Jamie and. You know, the person that said, hey, you know, your hair is parted on the wrong side. So, you know, when the end product got to the got to the public, you know, we got comments like that. And those comments always help. Yes. Yeah, it definitely does. We definitely accept good critiques from the, from the fans. And we do get a lot of feedback that that really does help us push the game further. So that's definitely beneficial in, in like every area except costumes and sets because we're pretty spot on on that. But even lighting, um, had a, a nice little conversation with people about what they saw as, as flaws in my lighting. And, and that's also someplace where, you know, every area we're trying to improve our game. And so it does help. How do you go about the lighting? I'm sure you've studied the original series shows. Have you also, have you talked to anyone who was actually involved at that point or anyone who studied under someone who was involved in the original series for the real technical aspects, like the exact settings or anything that they used on the show itself? Sadly not. And, and one of the other problems that I have in trying to duplicate it is just that the, the technology to record it is, is a lot different now than then. So when you're shooting on 35 millimeter film or when you're shooting on digital, there's a big difference. Even like from the earlier episodes as involved in like Blood and Fire, when we're shooting on an on a old Panasonic HVX 200 to now we're shooting on, on Red Ones and Red Epics, they're night and day difference. So it's, it's a little bit difficult that I have to try and replicate that look and feel but do it for digital, which responds entirely different for the lights. So we do, I have grabbed a lot of screenshots of behind the scenes things to see where they place lights to get those ideas. And then um, 
it just becomes a learning experience in that. And this is where um, Jamie's truck expertise really comes in handy. Every times I'll say, and, and here's an example, and he's going to come up with the answer in, in half a second. Um, but there was this episode where Spock is sitting in the recreation room and there's this, this multicolor color splash on the wall behind him. There you go. And so like then five seconds after that, he'll have screenshots and stills pulled up for me. So I can, I can see the look and feel that they did in certain scenes. Mm -hmm. And then my lighting team helps me try and replicate that. Great. So Brandon, how about for you playing Spock? I love hearing from those who play the role of Spock. I had Todd Habercorn on a while back to talk about him playing Spock in Star Trek Continues. Good old Ab. I always feel in Star Trek that playing Vulcans is one of the hardest roles to play, one of the hardest roles to cast. How have you approached Spock? Yeah, approaching Spock, um, he's such a complicated person. I know he, he appears very uh, straight and narrow, but there's just so much more to him. Um, you know, it's, it's really about this. There's a whole world of stuff going on in his brain that you can only notice if you're really paying attention to him. Because uh, to most people, he just uh, seems stoic all the time. But really, he's computing numbers in his head. He, he's dealing with uh, having emotions and feelings beyond the surface. So uh, approaching any role, you know, it's, it's finding uh, how you relate to the character. I am quite uh, a paradox myself, very stoic, very serious, but I'm also ex like a joker at the same time. So uh, I kind of flip back and forth. Uh, I've got that duality myself, and I think that's what Spock has, and we get to see that from him from time to time, which is, which is my favorite to really... Uh, show all the uh, different sides of him but if you're paying close attention it's there in every episode yeah very interesting yeah i see that too and even in Leonard nimoy spock yes when you go back and you watch through things that people usually don't talk about because as you say they picture him as being just very stoic well, let's talk about some of the new developments for Phase 2 this year. You have new cast additions. Of course, Brian, we've already talked about you taking on the role of Captain Kirk, which James Cawley had played in the past. Also, crew additions. Uh, very big news. The great David Gerald joining the team as the new showrunner. And also, Rick, you have written the next three episodes, Bread and Savagery, Mind Sifter, and The Holiest Thing. What can you tell us about the cast editions, including guests and crew editions? And Rick, what has it been like writing these stories? Well, I, I think the, uh, the the fact that I've been a, uh, a lifelong Star Trek fan, uh, including uh, starting at about age four, and I remember the uh, first showing of the Corbamite maneuver and having to hide behind a couch when uh, Baylock's alter ego uh, came yeah. upon the screen. I actually <laughs> stayed away from the show for another three or four years after that. But Did uh, you really? <laughs> yeah. It, but uh, when it went into syndication is when I really fell in love with it and been a fan ever since. Um, so, uh, the, the opportunity to actually write, uh, for Star Trek, uh, we did a, uh, we did a screening of the holiest thing, uh, in Kalamazoo, Michigan, which is my hometown. And Brian Gross very graciously came up for that screening and, uh, we packed out the theater and, uh, I, I stood it there during the introduction and I said, here's something I thought I would never have the opportunity to say in front of anyone. My name is Rick Chambers and I'm a writer for Star Trek. Uh, so it's a, really is a, a dream come true. Um, the, you know, the actual doing a writing of the stories, I think I've, I've learned, uh, an immense amount, uh, with, with every, uh, take on it. Um, Bread and Savagery was the first one that I wrote and, uh, uh, and then had the opportunity to work on the holiest thing and, uh, getting to know, uh, all the, the actors, uh, you know, Brian and Brandon and, and John Kelly and Charles Root and Patrick Colley and, and Jasmine Pierce and so many others. Um, it's just been uh, a real treat and they're folks that are very talented and bring, um, you know, an immense uh, amount of skill uh, to playing those roles. The production crew, you know, Jamie and, and Dennis and Rob and, and, and everyone else that's involved, just absolute professionals. And it's really about fans making it happen. 
uh, making it happen for the fans and doing it in a way that is absolutely um, uh, faithful in, to the original series. How much involvement has David Gerald had up to this point? So David, uh, you know, it's fascinating. It might, he uh, came aboard for the uh, the holiest thing when we shot it last year. We had he had the opportunity then to uh, to weigh in on the episode, and uh, that was also an, an interesting learning experience for me as well, um, because you know obviously with his experience with Star Trek, right back to um, actually writing for the original series, he brings a perspective and and a strength that uh, really uh, you, you won't find in, in any other uh, fan produced uh, series out there, and so that's been really valuable I think, and uh, he's sort of helping set a bar. Uh, for the entire series in terms of creating compelling stories and so forth that I think are just going to continue to make Phase 2 that much better. Definitely. Yeah, that was a great a great bit of news that he was coming on as showrunner. Absolutely. I mean, what, what uh, and, and, you know, again, for him to uh, to bring that that history and that uh, that insight uh, to the series is, is, is only going to make things better. Well, beyond the cast and crew additions, the other big piece of news, this is amazing, you guys have a 13,000-square-foot facility where you're recreating all of the sets from the original series for the very first time. As I understand it, this is the first time on any independent production that all of these sets will actually be built and you'll be able to shoot in that environment. And it's just a huge undertaking, but it's really exciting as well. Dennis, you're the first AD. How will these new sets change the way that you approach shooting and running the floor in these episodes? Well... First, I mean, just in terms of, I have to say, nostalgia. I mean, these are going to be exactly like the sets were at Desilu in 1966. If you'll let me back up a bit, um, I've actually held the blueprints in my hand. Uh, oh, James wow. Colley got, got copies, I believe, from Bill Tice, who was the costumer. And so, I mean, to hold, hold those documents and see measurements and all those kind of things was, was just a you know, a, a surreal moment. Um, and those are the blueprints to the Desilu studio from the 60s you're talking about. Exactly. I mean, not not something from, a, you know, a book, the technical manual that came out in the mid-70s. Mm-hmm. These, are, these are the actual blueprints. So I think, you know, in terms of filming, the crew is going to come on and the actors and, and everybody that works so hard is going to have a little bit of, if I can use the word, reverence for it. Like how you know, how, how cool that is to be able to, to film on it. From a technical standpoint, our studio was in, you know, a small town outside of Ticonderoga called Port Henry. That was an old car dealership. So, you know, the bridge was standing and the transporter room was upstairs and and then the, the briefing room was to the side. So we would always have to build and, and move things and take a wall down and put a, flaw, a, a wall flat up and build sick bay and then light it. So it, it just, you know, in terms of, you know, shooting schedule, you have 10 days to, to shoot a, an episode and, you know, we're, we're, we're moving a wall and, and James Cauley is a stickler for, you know, detail. And if there's a slight blemish, the bond goes out and we repaint that, that flat. So being able to have, you know, those sets recreated exactly the way they were in 1966, we'll be able to permanently, you know, set up some lights and leave them there. And we just have to tweak them. And then the, the, the job that Rob Morrow does in, in recreating that TOS look will, will be so much easier for him and, uh, and so much faster for, for myself being able to keep um, the shoot on schedule. Uh, we will also be able to fly the bridge like in the way it was before. It was always assembled. We couldn't take a, a piece of the pie out and, and do those, those TOS shots that, 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 we, all, that we all love. So we're going to be able to actually fly the bridge this year and, and, and get very, very creative and, and, and respect the original material when we film it. But from a straight technical standpoint, just being able to, to be on time, like to have things pre-lit and come into work in the morning and, and have Rob look at magic and, and I can say, Mr. Director, um, we're ready to go. Let's, 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 uh, let's hit record. Rob, what are your thoughts on the new possibilities that this set will bring? Well, this gives us a, a lot of opportunities when it comes to to, to lighting, and, and there's things in filming of, in camera that I've wanted to be able to light for as well that we haven't been able to, like some extensive dolly shots um, 
where you have to take out a pie wedge on the bridge and we couldn't. Um, when it comes to lighting, we've been talking about a lighting grid now for, for ages and when we finally got to the point when we were just going to go ahead and do it, things finally went through on, on this new location which we've been working on for a few years. So now I finally have that opportunity and can set up an extensive grid set above everything and as we can afford it, pre-light everything. We already have a few massive distro boxes that are designed so that I have to do split switches and do some fine tuning. So there's another thing that, that helps me with it, and that's I don't have to spend nearly as much time trying to recreate something that we had because sometimes when we're shooting because of actor constraints or because of, of weather constraints or we have to move a location shot, we'll have to shoot for instance on the bridge and then move to someplace else and then move back to the bridge and we have to get those lights exactly right. Um, and we can do it. Um, like the turbo I've seen in Blood and Fire between Kirk and McCoy was shot over the period of four years, and I had to go in there and reset the lights every time. Wow. So it's possible to do, but it takes it takes a lot of time. Uh, and so this will help avoid that. Um, our group electric team isn't going to be worked as hard. They're usually the first ones in and the last ones out because they have to set up and be ready when everyone else is ready to roll. And then they have to break down and, and, and start doing some pre-lighting for the next day. So... It makes the job a lot easier and, and gives us a lot more possibilities and we can start focusing more on the creative aspect of it instead of we need to get this lit so that we can film something. Yeah, and, and Rob, if I may interject, just like set construction, like having sick bay permanently built, having that corridor, that, and that's 57 feet of corridor we've got that will be permanently built, um, whereas before we would have to actually take wall flats and, and build a section of that corridor. Um, that's all time. And uh, you know and you have to light it, but it's just to have that to have that built. Um, it's going to allow us to you know stay on schedule and let the GE team do what they do so well, um, and and recreate that that great lighting that that we all that we all enjoy from from the 60s. That's that's the other you know really really good point is we have an amazing set construction team, and we're lucky we set um, the set construction team and, and the group electric team work together really well, but. Um, you know, this gives them time to focus on um, sets that aren't standing sets. Like when you need something that wasn't part of Desilu's original blueprint, that they, you know, they put something off in the corner, like the forward phaser control room, um, or auxiliary control, so they can focus on those things because it's the only thing that saved us in the past. Is is that they're so phenomenal at what they do, and we work well enough together that I mean, literally we'll be pulling down walls and pulling down lights around each other and. Yeah, it's, it's a kind of hairy situation to do that, but um, and it's great that we get to avoid that and, and these, these phenomenal guys can get back to creativity and, and cranking out other sets that we need. It sounds like this will potentially speed up production as well to allow you guys to tell more stories over the coming years in the same amount of time that you have in the past. Tremendously. That shoot's actually going to be a 10-day um, a shoot. Generally, we'll, we'll do a, a 14 or 15 day shoot mm -hmm. um, because we don't have the turnaround time. Um, one of the big things are, I mean, you can wait on a set. When you start pulling apart sets and you put them back together, you've got to rebond those seams and then repaint them. You might be waiting half a day for something to dry. Then when it comes to lighting, if we've just got the bridge and we have to move to the transporter room, everyone's taking a four hour break because bridge can take 24,000 watts to light. Transporter wow. room is maybe half that. But that's still a lot of light, so yeah. you know, and transporter room is upstairs, so got to rip down everything on the bridge to take half those lights upstairs and then hang them on the ceiling in the transporter room. So turnaround times between scenes become a lot quicker, which makes everything a lot easier for Dennis, and we can move along a lot quicker. We could shoot, I think, we're shooting somewhere near high 60s or low 70s on our page count on this one, and we're doing it in less time because we don't have these really drawn out turnaround times for sets and for grip and electric this time. So Brian and Brandon, how does this faster turnaround time and change in the sets impact you guys as actors? Well, we get to spend more time on the set creating the character and uh, really uh, absorbing the scene, hopefully. So that's always a plus. Uh, having having more time to kind of uh, rehearse with each other is always beneficial. So I'm looking forward to that. And uh, the flip side to that is, you know, having too much time to sit around <laughs> is also uh, 
it can be frustrating. That's what I thought. Yeah. Every set is like that, but you know, having the ability to walk on set if we need to walk on set or move on to something else if we are ready to move on that's great i mean that's what we all want i can't i can't wait to see this new set because part of having it all built and all set up there is you're gonna feel i mean already the bridge was amazing and the feel when you walk onto it it's i I can't describe it it's like it's like you're entering the show but to go and see the corridors built and sick bay everything set up it's going to be a little magical. I can't wait to see how that impacts us as actors and what that's going to do to us. We can lock the doors to the studio and live on that ship. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it. Let's do it. (laughs) We will be in space for real. So bring your, bring bring your glow in the dark stars and we can put them on the ceiling and let's just camp out on that ship. Sounds good, buddy. I'm with you. That should be one of your perks for your Kickstarter. Anyone who contributes X amount of dollars gets to camp out on the Enterprise during lockdown (laughs) with you guys. Sounds great. You know, what's what's amazing by that idea, too, is the fact that um, I could actually see that happening uh, in, in, in one respect because this really is a family. You know, these are all people that come together once a year just because they love Star Trek and they love each other. And that's been certainly a highlight. Uh, from my perspective, and in being involved with Phase 2. It's just a lot of fun. It's like a family reunion when we come back together. Absolutely. It's really interesting because we'll work like 16-hour days. And it's like, oh, man, we got to get out of here. we got to get some rest. And then we'll go back and we'll start like a 20-foot bonfire and hang out for another four hours. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, after like a day like that and you're still not tired of hanging out with each other, you know, you got a really great bunch. And there was a day last year that we worked, I think, uh, 24 hours like we, we shot out the bridge last year wow. yeah oh gosh and and and, the, and I, I gotta give a shout out to uh you know to the actors because they just they brought it and and it uh and it really showed in in the final product and when we showed that episode in boston you know we brought that up and said hey those bridge scenes took us around you know 24 hours to shoot um and just to show you how how great um, our, our professional actors are at, at, at doing that. They're, they're, they're truly amazing. I mean, we, we have our, our extremely long days and, and actually understand what it takes. I mean, they, have, they, they bust their butts with all of what they have to do and they have so much to do to prepare for a role. And, and then it's like, yeah, well, we've got to spend three hours lighting the bridge. And they're like, we understand. It's really it's a it's a great feeling because it's it's just like this family and, and they know what's going on so and and then they bring their A game it's like three in the morning and you're, and half the crew's falling asleep and they go out there and it's just like wow watching watching them that's amazing it'll be very nice for the actors to have the set built as well because a lot of the times when we're doing this we we have to move quickly while we film the scene so we can get to everything because we want to get everything shot out. But now that uh, the sets are going to be there, that aspect of it is going to move quicker and we can probably get more takes. I mean, there's, there's a lot of times we'll do one or two takes in a setup and move on. And now we'll probably have the opportunity to do more takes and try some different creative things. I'm, I'm really excited to have more time to play and more time to be Captain Kirk with this uh, new set, I think uh, Brandon and I are going to have a blast with that. That we are, my friend. That we are. That's right. <laughs> well, let's talk about the episodes themselves a little bit here. Rick, we've already talked about The Holiest Thing, Bread and Savagery. We've mentioned those anyway. The next one to be released is The Holiest Thing. Tell us a little bit about this story. Well, this is the story that, um, uh, that I think everybody would wanted to see happen and that is when um, Captain Kirk and meets the love of his life who's Dr. Carol Marcus becomes the mother of his son and um, it was uh, it was actually an idea born while we were shooting Bread and Savagery James Cauley kind of threw out this idea of we want to do this episode and I happen to be standing there and say it without even thinking 
I immediately put my hand up and said, I want to write that episode. And uh, so he challenged me to do a treatment, which I was so excited about. I turned around in less than 48 hours. So while we were still shooting Bread and Savagery, I wrote a seven-page treatment for The Holiest Thing, which I gave to him. And uh, he loved it. Uh, Brian got a chance to read it. He loved it. And we were able to, uh, to put that together. So I'm, I'm very excited to see that one be completed. Are there any teasers here about Carol Marcus? Now, she's not going to have a British accent in this episode, is she? Uh, no, because uh, the amazing, although I suppose we could have challenged uh, J.C. King to do that, but uh, the, the, the fascinating thing is uh, the wonderful chemistry that there was between Brian and J.C. because uh, they are husband and wife in real life. Hence the awkward tension. <laughs> well, I, I, I see this photo of the holiest thing and the two of you, Brian, you're, you're in the chair and she's looking at you and the look on your face is like, you got the iPhone commercial and I didn't. What's with that? <laughs> yes, my wife is a commercial genius. She books commercials nonstop, and <laughs> she just got a commercial with our two kids, our whole family auditioned for an iPhone commercial, and they booked my wife and my two kids, and they gave her a different husband. Oh. <laughs> and the tagline is, iPhone 6 gets you a new husband. I should have worn my uniform to the audition. I would have gotten it for sure. Brian, <laughs> yeah. you, you have nothing to worry about because you play – Captain Kirk in Star Trek, and uh, where do you think these iPhones and iPads came from? Exactly. Good point. <laughs> Good point. Bluetooth, the whole bit. <laughs> right. She could be nothing without you. No, I, I, I loved getting to work with my wife on that. I told her it was, it was fantastic because she was forced to look at me lovingly and to kiss me, <laughs> and I, I actually had a thing set up with the the director, uh, uh, Darren, and we, we, got, we got fairly close, and I asked him in the scenes where a, a couple scenes ended with a, a kiss between Carol Marcus and Captain Kirk, and I asked him if he would be so kind as to not call cut and just see <laughs> how long she would kiss me throughout this scene. And it actually worked three or four times before she started picking up on it, and then she just clocked me. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Sounds like, sounds like true love, Brian. Yep, yep. I do what I can, man. <laughs> well, what about Bread and Savagery? What can you tell us about this story? Well, this, that was, Bread and Savagery was the, uh, the first story I had the opportunity to write for Phase 2. And uh, there's a long, wonderful story uh, how that, and I ended up doing that. But uh, to summarize it very briefly, I ended up encountering uh, one of the folks involved in the production who uh, invited me to, to pitch this idea. And in Bread and Circuses, which uh, is the uh, episode that Bread and Savagery is a sequel to, is really the one Star Trek story that I always wanted to write a sequel to. I remember the very first time I saw that episode, and, and uh, for your listeners who are familiar with that, that, that last scene where on the bridge where uh, Hura makes the point that the sun worshippers are actually Christians, and Kirk is amazed that, that this whole history with the Roman Empire on another planet is actually repeating what had happened on Earth. It just begged for um, that sequel to be told, and I wanted to tell it. I actually at one point started to put together what, what I hoped would become a novel that I could get published in that regard. So to be able to actually write that, that sequel uh, for an episode that in many respects was what jump-started my desire to be a writer in the first place, it just took 40-odd years to make it happen. Was really uh, a great experience, and uh, again, we had tremendous uh, acting from Ryan and from Brandon, from John Kelly, uh, Darren Docterman, who plays Claudius. Brian Holloway, who uh, plays a certain mysterious character, some really, really uh, Jonathan Carter Shaw, uh, also another great character in that. Just it's a really fun episode. I think people really will enjoy it. And the other episode is called Mind Sifter, and this is an item whose existence I am well aware of because Core mentioned it six thousand times in Aaron to Mercy. What can you tell us about the story of Mind Sifter? Is it a sequel to Aaron to Mercy? 
No, it's the uh, uh, the story is actually based on a, uh, a well-loved short story that was written back in the 1970s. Phase two was given permission to uh, to turn it into an episode, and so James Colley contacted me uh, late last year and uh, invited me to write the teleplay based on the short story. I and Mind Sifter happens to be one of my favorite Star Trek short stories from over the years, so that was a real honor uh, to be able to turn that into an episode that I think people will be looking forward to seeing. It's, uh, I don't want to give too much away, but uh, people that are familiar with the story uh, knows that uh, it involves uh, time travel, and it's a story that's very strongly centered on um, Kirk and Spock, both individually and in their relationship, and some pretty amazing things happen from that. So um, uh, I, we're looking forward very much to uh, having that one shot this year. All right, so it has nothing to do with the Klingon Mind Sifter. Well, no, it does. Uh, it does It does refer to the Mind Sifter uh, that, that Coor talks about in Aaron of Mercy. But it, it's not a story about a Mind Sifter per se, but uh, the Mind Sifter has a, a prominent role in, in what happens to okay. uh, to our characters in that. So don't want to give any spoilers, but sure. uh, I think folks will definitely enjoy this story. All right, great. And so as production goes along, The Holiest Thing will be released, then Bread and Savagery, and then Mind Sifter. That's correct, yes. And so to do this and to build the sets that we've talked about today as well, that all takes a lot of money. And you guys have a Kickstarter underway for Star Trek Phase Two 2014 that's dedicated to funding the set development and the production of these episodes. And you've blown right past your goal, which is not surprising because your initial goal was $10,000, which was extremely modest. And especially for phase two, with the track record you guys have, I mean, that was a given. How long did it take you to pass $10,000? I'm guessing it was probably about six hours. It was hours, yeah. Hours, yeah, I figured. So right now, as we're recording this, you've already passed 30,000, you're at 33,000. You have a lot of great stretch goals that go all the way out through 90,000. What can people get if they help support phase two? Tell us more about your stretch goals as well and all the things that you're hoping to achieve through this campaign. Well, there's a lot of things that they'll get. Besides the stretch goals that's out there, one of the things that um, the campaign's going for is to allow us to finish four episodes. So we've got the episodes that we've mentioned, and we do have a a false shoot that we would like to do. That's going to mean that we're going to have to go considerably over our 90,000 stretch goal, because it it definitely is expensive. What all of these goals fund is, is still only a fraction of what it takes to produce an episode, because it still costs us all, you know, a couple grand to come up and, and actually make the episodes and it's right. really paying for the production needs. Um, so we've, we've tried putting together a lot of um, really great perks for people. We've got a pair, one pair of Brandon's uh, Spock ears. We, we've got three of them signed. Are those pre-worn ears? Those are worn, of course. All right. Um, they're all screen used ears. Um, we have only there's two more. There's ones. more where that came from, guys. More <laughs> <than> <laughs> <that>. <laughs> He's got a got collection for you. Yeah. Yeah, he takes them and, out on the town. And I would personally love, I know Brian Gross would love to do this as well, to give out 90,000 hugs. So <laughs> let's, I love let's, hugs. Meet that, let's meet that goal. <laughs> I want to see that on the Kickstarter page. I want to see pledge $1,000 or more, and you get a hug from Brian Gross, and it says limited, zero left of 90,000. <laughs> I, have, I, have no, I have no problem giving giving a hug to 90,000 people if, if 90,000 people put in a dollar. Only thing is, though, um, you can't stalk me, and you have to meet me randomly. And if you see me, you say, hey, I put in a dollar with my hug. I got you. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> so back to the Kickstarter. Thank, first, everybody who's listening to this who has uh, donated to the Kickstarter, let me say, Brandon Stacy as Spock, thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, tell your friends, give some more, and uh, we, we want to keep making these episodes. Isn't that right, everybody? Absolutely. Yes, sir. That's right. That's correct. <laughs> so tell us about the stretch goal so people know what you're going for here. Uh, so $10,000, 
was the first one, and that was to help you get the holiest thing finished and released to fans. And then you have stretch goals at 20,000, 30, 50, and 90. So we have a lot of um, post-production work still to do on Bread and Savagery, and a couple more scenes that we'll be picking up in June. So that 20,000 is going to cover it. And it actually only is, uh, it's a $6,000 bump to cover that after um, Amazon's fees when they take it out of the Kickstarter. Um, so that's going to help us get that out of the door. Then we move on to our 30,000 stretch goal, $8,000 towards um, more work on the studio because building all the sets of the enterprises is, is very expensive and it's all coming out of our pockets right now. So that'll help us finish them up and, and build some other sets, some, some sets that people haven't seen. Because if people have watched Going Boldly, they'll see that the engineering sets changed to um, to uh, migrate to the aborted Phase 2 series engineering set. And that's that's a massive and very expensive set. After that, we have our 50,000 goal, which is uh, another 15,000 to the production. And that's going for the rest of the production work that we're going to need on, on Mind Sifter. It's going to be rather ambitious between sets that we have to build for... Well, certain places that are needed, they're not standard enterprise sets. Uh, so there's going to be a big help with that and with the post-production work that's involved with that as well. And then our final stretch goal, which I'd actually like to see us blow past, and I'll get to the reason why soon, is $90,000. So what that does is it helps us cover the expenses on this 13,000-square-foot studio. Because on top of, of course, our, our regular studio expenses, it's not like we can just unrent the place between shoots. So we have to pay for it throughout the year. So that helps cover that, which allows us to, to put money in towards the other things that we have to fund for shooting, like the massive electricity costs. It's at 24,000 watts to light the bridge, that meter is, is spinning at warp speed and costs us a fortune. Um, so if we get past that stretch goal, um, you know, there's no limit to what it is that can help us. It helps us with a lot of other things. I'll be able to budget money to build a full lighting grid over every set and make things even quicker. Uh, we'll be able to budget more things for set construction so they can have things on standby for any set we need it also means that when our fantastic writers are writing episodes you know they're not having to check every time and say hey can we build the set can we do this how can we do that because so it opens up a lot more avenues to to better storytelling as well the further we go beyond that ninety thousand dollar stretch goal so the more we get the more ourselves we can produce and the more things that we can do in them and the less limited we are in story selections and for those who pledge, you have a lot of great perks all the way from, for $10, credit on the backers page, and Juan Ortiz, who has been doing all the great artwork for each original series episode, anyone who's visited Star Trek.com over the past year has seen all the work Juan Ortiz is doing, and he's doing a poster for The Holiest Thing, and that's a perk that people can get. And then all the way down to $3,500 or more, an actual walk-on role in an episode and i see right now three of those have already been claimed but there are still two remaining and that's that's an actually um it's a really kind of a special one because um the one perk that we can give our crew well there's two you get your your name in, in the in the end credits and the second perk is that you get to be an extra in an episode so we take everyone who's worked hard and we try and find some place to fit them in an episode um, so this is like this is the first time that we're actually opening that up to the fans. Something that's that you know we feel that we owe to the crew for all the hard hours that they put in because no one ever sees them, no one sees what goes on behind the scenes. They just see the end result of that. So you know it's 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 kind of a special thing, and they get to be a part of history as well um, by being immortalized in an episode. Plus, Rick can write a scene where they get to hug Brian. And But my question is, does that count as one of the 90,000 hugs if it's actually in the script? And Kirk just hugging someone, though, that's, that, that kind of flies in the face of the character. I'm just saying. And that's only if I can schedule it into the shoot, too. I mean, we got, we got, it, we got it in time. Like 90,000 hugs, that might be a four-month shoot. So that, that, that might be difficult to do. I'm a long hugger too. It's not just a yeah, quick and, and, and he's, he's going to look at me and go, like, don't yell cut yet. So <laughs> right. uh, we're going to be standing there waiting, and Brian, you know, it's just going to be Brian awkward. Is a long so. hugger. Yeah, we'll get we'll get like ten hugs in in a day if we're lucky. <laughs> hey, you know what? If we have if we have the studio, it doesn't matter how long the hugs take because uh, that's what that's why we got the studio. 
so we That's can true. have as much as we need. We, we could just so leave them there till the next shoot and then come back. That's it. That's it. I'll, I'll hug you until we shoot again. <laughs> Who is writing up these Kickstarter perks? What's going on? <laughs> Obviously, Brandon is. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, tell everyone if they want to find out more about Phase 2, if they want to support the Kickstarter as well, or they want to follow you guys in social media. Where's the best place for them to go for that? Okay. If they want to check out our website, it's www.startrekphase2.com. They can find Kickstarter links there, or they can go to bit.do, bit.do slash trek, and that'll take them to our Kickstarter page, our Facebook page, where they can interact with a lot of the cast and crew. Um, cast and crew who are always jumping in and out of there is facebook.com slash Star Trek Phase 2, and, and that's with the number two. Excellent. Well, Brian, Brandon, Rick, Dennis, Rob, Jamie, thanks so much for joining me today. I hope you guys enjoy this big group discussion. I know it's um, sometimes hard to get a word in edgewise with such a large group, but it was really fascinating. Well, I will leave you with this. Pond far for everyone. (laughs) All right. I hope you're making T-shirts that say that to help find these two. Yeah, it's a Kickstarter perk. <laughs> Very good. Well, okay. thanks again, guys, for your time. Thank today. you so much, Chris. Thanks. thanks for, for having us. Thanks. Thank you so much. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed learning about Phase Two and their upcoming plans today. I know if I ever make it to upstate New York, I'm definitely going to be camping out on the bridge of the Enterprise. But Phase 2 and Brian's hugs aren't the only thing we've been discussing here on Trek of Him this past week. So here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. Arena Commentary. They're like, everything is fine. It's, there's nothing. Just come down. We have fried chicken. <laughs> it's good. Earl Grey. Picard's romances. You say it's not great, Philip, but what I think you mean is it's probably one of the most forgettable episodes of the <laughs> entire series. The Ready Room. The Romulan War. That was, what, the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth episode of the original series. Lawrence Schneider, he invents the Romulans. That was the whole, the whole genesis of it. And if they'd known that the Romulans might have been a recurring alien, they might not have given them those, you know, quote-unquote, expensive helmets. The orb. We find out, and Quark finds out, as we're talking about how he reacts and sort of comes to terms with what his mother's doing. She's the woman behind the curtain. She's the person who is calling the shots at the highest level of Ferengi society. To the journey! Ultimate Season 5 Marathon. You could argue brother and sister, but maybe more like your favorite uncle, who you once had a sex dream about. I don't know. <laughs> so that explains persistence of vision. <laughs> yeah. Warp 5. Archer's Lost Loves. Not Dodge so much, it's just he's unsure of himself in that, in that regard. He can be a starship captain, but a guy in love, mm, I don't know about that. Commentary, Trek Stars. Companion. He secretly doesn't know every time he replies to me on Twitter, I let out a little fan squeal on the other end. I play it cool, though. I play it cool, guys. Um, no, I'm, I'm the same exact way, but I don't play it cool. By little fan squeal, you mean <laughs> that sound Chekhov made. In the <laughs> continuing mission. The continuing mission audio drama. Our writer, David Raines, is a huge Lovecraft fan. And all of these Lovecraftian creatures are from outer space. And, you know, the Star Trek characters, they're always running into, you know, these godlike beings, but, you know, they're benevolent, well, they're not benevolent, but, you know, they speak English, and, you know, they look like William Campbell. And- Literary Treks. Serpents among the ruins. We'll always help Paris. <laughs> wow, you just destroyed one of my favorite lines from... My favorite movie ever. Uh, we'll always have Iron Mike Paris. Oh God. All right. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. 
So check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. You'll find them pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. We're on iTunes, on Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zoom. We're also on Spreaker, and we're on BlackBerry. We're also on Swell, which is like the Pandora for podcasts. You'll find us in various other podcast directories. And of course, you can go to our website and stream the episode from the show page or grab the RSS feed and pop that into your favorite podcatcher. If you're over at iTunes, be sure to check out our artist page where you'll be able to find a lot of our older content. We have almost a thousand episodes here on the network now, which is really hard to believe, but it does mean that there's a wealth of interviews and discussion waiting for you that you might not find so easily through various other sources. So check out our artist page. We really appreciate Apple giving us that resource. And you can get there easily by just going to iTunes.com slash TrekFM. And while you're there, if you enjoy the show, leave us a star rating and a written review. We love to hear from you. And it also helps other Star Trek fans find the show as they're searching iTunes. Also, if you leave us a review in a country other than the United States, please give me a shout and let me know. Unfortunately, iTunes does not alert us to reviews. So we have to just check our pages. And of course, we have 16 shows and the master feed, so that's 17 pages that we have to check, and see if there are any there, and we have to do every country individually. Of course, as I'm recording podcasts, it's hard for me to keep tabs on that, so just give me a shout on Twitter, C. Brian Jones, the letter C, and Brian with a Y, or the main account, TrekFM, on Twitter. Just let me know it's there. Now, if you're streaming this show from our website, you can have it delivered directly to your device of choice by subscribing to the Continuing Mission show feed or to the Trekafilm Complete Master Feed, which contains every episode of every show, as well as some other special audio content that's not available in the single show feeds. You can find that in iTunes, also on Stitcher, on TuneIn, on Swell. It's in most places, so uh, just search for Trek.afilm Master Feed, and that should come right up for you. If you'd like to send us some feedback on today's episode, there are a number of ways for you to do that. You can go to our website at trek.afilm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose continuing mission, and that will come to me by email. You can also find us on Twitter, as I mentioned a moment ago. Our username is trekfm. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm and on Google Plus, where we have a community. A very long URL will get you there. So just search Google Plus communities for trek.afilm and you'll find us. And we also have traditional forums on our website at trek.afilm slash forums. If you'd like to find me, as I mentioned a moment ago, my username on Twitter is cbrianjones, the letter C and Brian with a Y. And I use that same username pretty much everywhere in social media. So just search that and you'll find me pretty much anywhere. I also have my own website at cbrianjones.com. And then elsewhere on the network, Matthew Rushing and I do two shows together, Literary Treks, where we talk Star Trek books and comics and interview authors. Also The Orb, where we talk Deep Space Nine. I do Warp 5, which is all about Enterprise. There's also Matterstream, which is about the world inspired by Star Trek. Those are all interviews there. And there's The Ready Room, which I host with other hosts from all around the network, and we talk about Star Trek news and all five live-action Star Trek series on that show every week. There's also Hyper Channel now, which is a daily show, and it's a quick 15-minute look at a couple of news stories every day from the world of Star Trek. So check out all those shows if you want to catch more. One more note here. The guys you just listened to have been kind enough to create a special Phase 2 trek film wallpaper that is included as one of the Kickstarter perks beginning at the $55 level. So look for that when you go over to support the project, and we're really pleased to play just a small, tiny part in helping bring these continuing voyages of the Enterprise to the screen. Before I let you go, I would like to tell you about our sponsor for today's show, Audible.com. They are the best source for audiobooks that you'll find online. They have over 150,000 titles for you to choose from right now, and they add hundreds of new titles every single week. I've been getting my audiobooks from them for 14 years now. I'm not sure how many books they had when I started. I know it wasn't 150,000, but it was still plenty. They got me through my long commutes here in Tokyo back in the day when I used to commute four and a half hours round trip to get to work and back home every day. Thankfully, Audible was there for me. And they're a great way for you to pass the time when you're commuting, when you're working, when you're exercising, doing chores at home. 
whatever it is, a great way for you to read all the books you've always wanted to read and never thought you'd have time for. They have a lot of Star Trek books on there as well, like Prime Directive Federation and Spock's World, which are all some of my favorites. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible. You'll get a 30-day trial to see how great Audible is, and if at the end of the trial you decide not to stick with Audible, there's nothing to lose because you get to keep that book. That's yours. But if you love podcasts, I know you're going to love Audible. So go give it a try. Go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. And again, we really thank Audible for their support of Continuing Mission and the Network, and we thank you for supporting Audible. Well, that's the show. A huge thanks to Brian, Brandon, Rick, Dennis, Rob, and Jamie for joining me today. I really enjoyed talking to them all. I hope you all enjoyed learning about Phase 2, and I hope you'll join me again next time here on this continuing mission. And let's see what's out there. <laughs>